Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Lydia Khalil, who is the author of the new book, Rise of the Extreme Right. Thanks for joining us, Lydia. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, what is the book Rise of the Extreme Right and what was the impetus for writing it? Well, the book is really meant to be almost a primer on right-wing extremism um, and the current threat that uh, it poses today. I know that sounds pretty grandiose and ambitious, but I I wanted to write this book for people who were kind of interested in this issue, who were, you know, seeing like all of us, the rise of extremist right-wing movements, particularly within Western democracies, but also outside of it, who wanted to understand more behind what was driving all of this. But also, I was really concerned more with how the rise of this particular extremist movement impacts democracies, because we do see an in, you know, some sort of interplay between mainstream and far-right populist political movements and extremist movements within the extreme right. And I wanted to tease out that dynamic and explain how this particular form of extremism really is a very particular and insidious and latent threat to our uh, democratic systems. The book is called Rise of the Extreme, right? Why not Rise of the Ideologically Motivated Extremism? <laughs> right. So that's that's another, uh, you know, insidery thing that I take a look at in my book. So what you're referring to here, obviously, is the reluctance to call this this type of movement as as far-right extremism or right-wing extremism. There are those within in government and, you know, and outside of it, too, who have kind of shied away from from this label. And so in the book, I explain what why uh, or why I think the reasons are. And instead of using right-wing extremism, they've used this kind of generic term called ideologically motivated violence, which I argue really makes very little conceptual sense or practical sense, and nor does it help us understand this, you know, the, the, this threat that we're facing. And yeah, I kind of get into, you know, some potential politicization around this issue, some of the, you know, the, the valid reasons why why we might be calling it ideologically motivated violence rather than what it is, which is, you know, right-wing extremist violence. Because, you know, we have seen kind of this mixture, so to speak, around, you know, various grievances and ad hoc beliefs strung together that have have motivated extremism. But what I try to put in the book is, is there's actually like a 
an, a continuing thread through all of these things that might seem disparate. So belief in COVID conspiracy theories or um, QAnon or all sorts of anti-government fueled grievance. And, and I talk about how these movements are kind of um, strung together by this ideological far right thread. And hopefully I kind of explain it in a way that clears up some of some of the reasons why we should identify these things as far right extremism. Lydia, historically speaking, right wing extremism has um, assumed various forms. What do you think is, if anything, what do you think is distinctive about the recent wave of organising by the ex- extreme right? Well, I think ideologically, you know, and in its manifestations, historically, as you said, the far right has taken on many forms and you you know you guys would know this better than me taking a look at these movements over the over the long haul but i think what's dis- distinctive perhaps of the present day probably is the intersection with communications technology in the digital environment not that it might have i mean there are arguments to be made that it kind of has shifted both the aesthetics and the narratives and 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 even potentially the ideology around these movements but it's certainly impacted the way that these particular communities form how they advocate there's been an intersection with disinformation and misinformation online that's also driving the the growth of these movements we've seen we used to talk about ideologues now we talk about influencers um so a lot of the the you know the figures within the far right movement have kind of self-styled themselves as you know online influencers and and using the kind of the mechanisms of of online culture and aesthetics and, and logics to promote these these ideologies. And so I, I'd say that that would be one of the big differences that I've seen. You identify several kind of contextual factors which might explain right-wing extremism. Can you briefly speak about what you think are the, the, the chief factors or the, the things about uh, society that are allowing space for the growth of the extreme right? Sure. I, I really like how you phrase that too, allowing space space for the growth of these movements, because I don't want to argue in any way that these are causal factors, because I talk about a number of structural factors in the book that might be driving the growth of right-wing extremism, but by no means I want to, do I want to implicate and say that the, these are causal, because frankly, we're all living under these conditions and not all of us are joining right-wing extremist movements. You know, there are, there are different responses to these global structural factors that we're, we're seeing, but to answer your question, I mean, one we already touched upon, which is the growth of disinformation um, and conspiracy theories related to the growth of disinformation, which was really kickstarted during the COVID pandemic, but I'd argue has a long history and association with far-right movements. The other one I identify as kind of global inequality and the and the inability, I think, of mainstream political m- movements up till now um, in order to be able to to grapple and, and address this. And I think that this is really on both sides of politics. And I and I reference the work of political economist Thomas Piketty, who who talks about the political economy um, of inequality. And and I'm not just talking about kind of run of the mill inequality. Where I'm I'm really talking about elite capture, where we're seeing you know more and more of wealth and resources really moving to the one percent versus the ninety nine. And you'll even you know notice that far right movements refer to themselves as the ninety nine. You know we had that movement out in Melbourne that Facebook group during the COVID pandemic talk about themselves as the 99%. But again, clearly, you know, far-right activism is not the only response to this. We've seen other responses, both within mainstream politics and and outside of it, that try to address this issue. But it's clear how, you know, far-right movements have kind of picked up on this, on this narrative and have used it as a means to stoke grievance and connect it to status. 
So it's not just about experiencing economic inequality because that theory of poverty or economic inequality uh, leading to violence or extremism has been largely debunked. But what we have seen from other studies is that it can be linked to perceptions of status and where people believe they fit in society. And so if you're among the white majority, for example, or the the historical winners of certain societies, um, and you see or perceive your status as diminishing, then that can become a motivating factor. And then I also talk about um, global democratic decline, both in the quality and the instances of democratic governance around the world. And this isn't just in the West, where we've seen the rise of Trumpism and far-right populism, but also in in the global South as well, you know, through uh, Modi's India, where we've seen, you know, historical, strong, multicultural democracies erode. And there's this appeal of this strongman type of leadership and an erosion of the belief in democratic systems to to kind of benefit the majority of, of society. And so I look at those things and I and I put forward the argument that you know th- this is what makes the space for some of these movements to grow. But it's not just that. Clearly, there has to be some other personal or psychosocial or community-based need as well that drives these people. But those are the kind of the broad, broad factors that I identify. You identify in the book the situation in Myanmar as being driven by right-wing extremism. Uh, could you explain why that is and why it's not just a you know an, an interreligious or interethnic conflict? Look, the situation in Myanmar is complex, and that was really a tricky one and to write to write. But I wanted to put put forward an example of the fact that this isn't just something that we're seeing in, in Western democracies. And I put forward the argument that you know the the, the rise of the Tatmadaw again, the stifling of Myanmar's emerging democracy was also driven by Buddhist extremism, mostly in the form of the Mabata. And they and I talk about how this Buddhist extremism has, has arisen out of the instability within Myanmar and argue that it kind of fits in with the definition of what we would consider to be far-right extremism. And I like to use Elizabeth Carter's definition because I think it's the most concise and elegant, which is anti-democratic opposition to equality. And so you see in the rise of these Buddhist extremist movements in Myanmar, stoking of Islamophobia, which then, you know, they the, the uh, Tatmadaw capitalized upon, which led to the Rohingya crisis, and I discuss how all of these things can also, along with what's been happening in Sri Lanka and in India, can be considered as part of the far-right spectrum. One thing I've noted in, in terms of the use of the term uh, extremism is that it implies, on one level, that these uh, movements' ideas are somehow fringe. And yet at the same time, as you note in the book, various figures have emerged in Western countries and elsewhere who are may be armed by some form of extreme ideology, but often uh, can find themselves at the centres of power. So can you elaborate a little on the relationship between extremism and more mainstream expressions of uh, right-wing sentiment? So this is, a, you know, another big part of the book as well, which, you know, gets to at the very heart of these issues. And I think that the the most obvious example of that is probably Trumpism in the United States, where you've seen mainstream right-wing parties become captured by, you know, the more extreme elements in their midst and stoked by Trumpism. But I argue there can be a really subtle and tricky interplay between elements of kind of mainstream 
right wing and far right parties, especially as they veer more to the far right rather than through your traditional conservatism that intersect kind of with the narratives and the appeals of extremist movements. And that if these political parties are not careful and have become more captured by the far right and the populist side of their political parties, then they could get to a point potentially where we've seen with the Republican Party uh, in in the United States, which is kind of moved very far from some of its origins. And and mind you, like if we look back historically, there's always been kind of interest uh, intersections within the Republican Party with Christian nationalism and other far-right political movements. But on the whole, the establishment was, you know, your main mainstream conservative party that pushed forward the interests of the capital class for the most part, right? But we see, you know, for example, in and one of the ways that this this mostly happens really is in terms of ideas and narratives around immigration, migration, refugees. So what what you'll see is kind of a, a like a a lighter side or a slightly softer side of a reframing of arguments around some of these issues by far right political movements of what say has been discussed within extremist elements. So I talk about for example generation identity and the identitarian movement and how that's intersected in Europe with the far-right political class as well. Whereas some identitarians, if you take a look at their ideology, it's, it's very, very close to espousing you know, violence as a solution. And then you see far-right political parties kind of repeating those narratives and repeating those talking points, so to speak, but not going so far as, say, the fringe. But it's like the spectrum of ideas that can kind of bleed into each other. Joe Biden last week referred to the MAGA movement that still revolves around Trump as being semi-fascist. Do you agree with that assessment? And, and or, or can you can you just be a little bit fascist? I don't know. Can you? I, I don't know <laughs> what semi-fascist means. I mean, I've heard fascist tendencies, maybe that that's one. But I think what he's what he's trying to say is he's, he is trying to identify this anti-democratic drift within the Republican Party and right-wing politics and believers in the United States. So I I would agree with this assessment that 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 the Republican Party is in trouble and that too many of its elements are captured by Trumpism, which I would label fascist. I know maybe that's controversial to say, but I think it's becoming less and less so. And so on the whole, while I'm not really sure what semi-fascist means exactly, I do share his concern and assessment about where the Republican Party is heading in the United States. You are listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Lydia Khalil about the rise of the extreme right. Returning to Australian shores, Lydia, it's often said that uh, Australia is a very successful multicultural country, and yet it has a history of white supremacy. How do you think contemporary expressions of right-wing extremism in Australia relate to that history? How do they employ it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, to to be frank, I think uh, both of you would probably know a lot more about this than I would, but kind of in, in my research for the book and some of the, the work that I've done, you know, I think every settler colonial country needs to to deal with this in, in Australia, Canada, the United States as well. And I think it's some of the, the far-right expression is an inability to come to terms with this history and to move on and to heal from it in a constructive way. So a lot of it is a denial of this history and a, a whitewashing, excuse the term, 
of that. And as someone who grew up in America, actually, it's, it's, it's been very interesting to compare and contrast the two societies in this regard in terms of their discussions around, you know, race and, and white supremacy and white nationalism. Uh, the United States has a, has a very troubling history with all of that as well. And no doubt there's also denial and obfuscation around that in some quarters. But I definitely see a much more willingness to grapple with and to speak plainly about that history in countries like the United States more so than Australia. So that's been that's been really interesting to to observe as well. Around Australia there have been there's been an increasing awareness at the state level that there is an issue with right-wing extremism which needs to be addressed. Uh, one of the ways that uh, has been proposed to counter the rise of the extreme right is to ban the Nazi swastika. I think uh, almost every Australian jurisdiction has either legislated or has proposed legislation to do this. I was wondering, what did you think of uh, swastika bans and their effectiveness? I think I probably don't have a very popular take on this. If I'm, I'll be, I'll be really honest with you. I didn't think that that was necessarily the most productive or appropriate way to go about it. Now, I don't want to see Nazi symbols anywhere. I'm clearly not a proponent of any of that stuff, but I just wonder if legislating a ban is really the best the best way to tackle this issue. Because if you start to ban particular symbols, what's going to happen is is that just alternative symbols are going to come up. And then it becomes more of a lure of deviant behavior to to put, you know, to start plastering these these symbols out. And also, where do you stop? I mean, you know, the ISIS flag also is a symbol of of hate and ethnic cleansing and genocide as well. That was never officially banned. And so so I have complicated views about this. What I would have liked to see more is really an emphasis on the teaching of Nazi history and fascist ideology and awareness of it, because I can't tell you how many younger people now just have no awareness of what those symbols actually really mean and the movement behind them and what they did. There's a lack of historical knowledge and historical teaching than the education system around this. I would have liked to see a lot more emphasis on, you know, that way to tackle it within within society. And so, while I I understand the impetus behind behind wanting to do something, I feel like one, it's a slippery slope in terms of banning symbols, and two, it might kind of lull us into this false belief that we're addressing this issue when it really must be addressed at a deeper level. And you'll also note in the um, in a lot of the legislation that it's uh, it's not banned online because there's no way they could affor- enforce that. And so that's good. it's going to be rife online as well as it, as it is. So I'm just not quite sure that it's the best way to deal uh, with these issues and whether we need to be focusing on symbols or rather the sentiment and the education uh, behind them. Oh, one person who's recently abandoned fairly recently abandoned the use of the swastika and even the ideology is um, Jeff Shoup of the formerly of the National Socialist Movement in the United States. You recount interviewing him in a discussion about um, individuals exiting the far right or the extreme right. How did you find that experience and what do you make of the emergence of a, a range of uh, formers who are now seeking to put distance between themselves and the ideologies and movements they previously embraced. Do you think that this is a positive development? And what sorts of concerns do you have about the emergence of such figures? Great question. That was a, a, a tricky part of the book as well, because 
it was very interesting talking to to Jeff Scoop about it. I mean, he is someone who is not very far removed from his involvement in the National Socialist Movement in the United States, leading the National Socialist Movement in the United States, the neo-Nazi movement there. And so, you know, there have been a lot of people who've pointed to figures like Jeff and say that they're not exactly repentant of their past activities. The reason why they're going into this formal life is that, you know, they're kind of just creating a a new persona, a new grift for themselves as quote unquote formers without really coming to terms with their, the consequences of of what they did, that they're not completely de-radicalized, so to speak. And to all of that, I would say, I really cannot assess. I don't know what, whether he has or has not. And I think those are fair questions to ask of anyone who's recently renounced their involvement in neo-Nazism or far-right extremism, because a lot of those people lie. Uh, A lot of them can be self-serving. And a lot of them are very eager to kind of get into this persona of a former to escape consequence. But at the same time, there are people who've done the work who are very genuine in their renunciation of these beliefs and are working to, you know, to rectify any past wrongs through this work. So I guess the short version of that long answer is, is that I think that it's, it's complicated. I can't make an assessment on Jeff specifically, but I have, you know, I'm definitely aware of the concerns around him because he is still involved in lawsuits and civil action around his involvement in the Charlottesville rally in 2017. And, and that's, that's a really important thing to note. But I suppose my interest in speaking to him and to speaking to someone like him is to really hear from the horse's mouth and to see how they justified their involvement to themselves. And Jeff talks a lot about his family history, being involved in World War II on the German side, his interest in that, what he wanted to to get out of it. And I think a lot of that narrative that he puts forward is self-serving. I think there's clearly more to it than that. But it was very interesting to hear directly from someone in that movement about how they see themselves and how their past involvement and that's kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to to speak to him. In addition to, I guess, organisers like uh, the aforementioned, you've also referred to influencers rather than ideologues. And when you referred to generation identity, one of the things, one of the persons that uh, sprang to mind was Lauren Southern, who became known for her association with and support of generation identity, but in recent years has... Um, popped up on our radars on Sky News. What, if anything, do you think is the significance of a figure like that appearing on uh, quite a mainstream uh, media platform? I think it's really significant and it gets it's a, it is a really illustrative example of this di- dynamic between the extreme and the mainstream that I try to tease out in the book. I think that it, um, it speaks either to a lack of awareness or a lack of appreciation of what having someone like that on on mainstream pl- platforms means and can do and legitimizing some of the ideas that um, she formerly promoted. I don't know whether she still does, but I think it is it is really, really significant because the identitarian movement, whether she herself has been involved in violence is beside the point. I don't believe that she directly has, but certainly the identitarian movement that she supported has. And it's not just violence that's the problem either. It's these anti-immigrant attitudes that corrode social cohesion, that corrode pluralism and the multicultural society that we live in. Because whether you like it or not, 
Australia is a multicultural society and will remain one. And so to have figures like her on mainstream platforms talking about whatever issues, given her past history, I think it should be of a significant concern. And frankly, I'm surprised doesn't get more attention. In that context, I suppose another question that occurs to me is, while it may be the case that the reasons someone like her or others may want a major platform from which to espouse their views is fairly straightforward, what, what purpose do you think is served by the media organisations that provide those uh, platforms to such individuals? Well, I think a lot of, you know, media operates and social media and, and the internet operates on an attention economy. And what usually grabs our attention is things that are controversial, less considered, people who can, ta- you know, give hot takes on a variety of issues. And so I think when you operate under that logic, and also keep in mind, you know, this gets, this is straying into other avenues here. But, you know, if you take a look at the way that the media landscape is developing, we're starting to rely more and more on commentators rather than on reportage or investigations. And so you've seen a proliferation of commentators across the board as well, because frankly, it's cheaper for new, you know, media outlets and news outlets to produce that type of content. And so I think that the potentially the more controversial someone's take is, it drives attention and drives traffic to particular sites or to particular media outlets. And so it's those kind of underlying things that I think would would motivate media outlets to to platforms figures such as this. And she's certainly not the only one. Lydia, we've seen in the past little while uh, and trend towards uh, accelerationism amongst the extreme right. And I think also with the COVID-19 pandemic, in a way, we've seen that accelerationism be accelerated by uh, this sudden influx of newcomers who are all coming from sort of weird positions. I was wondering, from your background of consulting with law enforcement, do you think that law enforcement quite understands the the current landscape uh, and are are they equipped to deal with the weirdness that's going on? I think they're definitely challenged by it, that that's for sure. And I think this this again goes back to we had this earlier, you know, discussion about terminology and you know this move to say well this is ideologically motivated uh extremism rather than identifying it as far right extremism because yeah some of the stuff really is weird and out there and and doesn't necessarily fit into what we think is far right extremism and usually we do we associate you know say neo nazis right but when you have someone pretending to be the queen of canada and and as a sovereign citizen there's not like a very clear direct link unless you really delve into the the history and the ideas and the movements to tease out that far right link with these movements to get it. So I think, yeah, it's, I think it has been challenging to kind of conceptualize how they fit into the extremist landscape and what to do about them. I think they're broadly treating them as kind of anti-government grievance fueled movements, which they are. But having said that, you know, a a lot of the, um, a lot of these groups that really turbocharged during the COVID pandemic. The sovereign citizen movement in particular does have antecedents in in Australia and elsewhere. You know, the sovereign citizen movement has um, been around for quite a while. And I think COVID-19 just kind of amped it up and exposed some of their ideas among people who were fed up under COVID restrictions and were chafing against government mandates and emergency laws, you know, and most of these were people who really never felt the full force of the state on them until the COVID pandemic. But if you take a look at other communities within society, particularly the more marginalized ones, they've always known what the state is capable of. But now you had a group of kind of largely middle-class people 
who who now all of a sudden are like, oh wow, okay, the government can do this to us. That you know, the, the government can put a, a state of emergency on. They didn't realize, I think, the full extent of the state, and I think some of that is what was driving the appeal of the sovereign citizen movement, which you know has a kooky philosophy and ideas around each person being. Uh, you know, fully sovereign and needing to enter into a contract with government as a as a sovereign being, and so yeah, I think that that was what was uh, what was driving it a lot during the COVID pandemic. Lydia, you've identified inequality and corrosion of faith in democratic institutions as being uh, two of the factors that helped to, uh, I guess, inspire or create an environment in which the far right or the extremist right can flourish. Given that the movement or the movements as a whole, at least in Western societies, attract the participation of young white men, do you think that this can be construed or understood as a kind of backlash to the actual progress that has been made by feminist and other movements in asserting progressive values? And how do you think people might consider responding to that backlash? Yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. I mean, a lot of this is reactionary sentiment to some changes that are occurring in society and how the impact or the perceived impact among people who are used to being on top of society, you know, primarily white males who might feel unsure, or even if they are, have been captured by this kind of narrative of their loss of status. So certainly I think that that, that's, that's something to consider and, and, and what's going on. In terms of a response to that, look, I, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, it's up to each individual and person to kind of make their way through this world. And part of the, the social contract, I think, living in a pluralistic democracy is that the, each person does have an equal status. I mean, we talk a lot about eg- egalitarianism in Australia, and maybe this is actually the manifestation of a more, you know, and better form of that. Uh, which tends to rankle some people. Well, that's all we have time for. Lydia, thanks so much for joining us. If people want to follow you on Twitter, you are at Arcana Khalil, and the book is The Rise of the Extreme Right. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Really appreciate talking to you guys. Well, Andy, that's the show. We'll be back next week. See you later. See you then.
Center for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangman present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. <laughs> 